Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. This morning, the title of my sermon is For the Love of Money. For the Love of Money. I want you to pay attention to the uh, outline here. I try to put together an outline that will help us uh, follow along with the sermon. It's important. I think to give structure to the sermon so that we can we can understand even by looking at the outline you can have some understanding of what the point of the sermon is. And so uh, James in this passage is is giving or going to give gives the wicked rich uh, the, the those who are wicked and rich three warnings of impending doom. He warns them he warns them that your miseries are imminent. He, so number two, he warns them that your means are ineffectual. And number three, he warns them that your mammon is an informer or a witness informer. Let me pray and then we'll read uh, James chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 where we'll find ourselves in the study this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time of being together for gathering and we pray Lord as we have sung in worship Father as we've heard your scripture read and Lord as we prayed this morning Father may this time this time of preaching in your word may it bring glory to you as well we thank you and praise you for it in in your name we pray amen James chapter 5 Verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been, and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. On March twelfth, two thousand nine, Bernie Madoff pleaded guilty to eleven federal felonies. Those included securities fraud, wire fraud, mail fraud, money laundering, making false statements, perjury, theft from an employee benefit plan, and making false filings with the SEC. The plea was the response of, to a criminal complaint filed two days earlier, which stated that over t- for the past 20 years, Madoff had defrauded his clients of almost $65 billion in the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Though Madoff was insisted he was solely responsible for the fraud, several others were implicated in the fraud. Uh, there was a man 
an investigator who earlier in 1999 had proven that it was mathematically impossible to achieve the gains that Madoff claimed to deliver. But he was ignored when he pled before the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC. Madoff admitted during his March 2009 guilty plea that the essence of his scheme was to deposit client money into a Chase account, Chase Manhattan, rather than invest it and generate steady returns as his clients believed. So he just simply deposited the money and he was basically robbing Peter to pay Paul. That's all he did. When clients wanted their money, he said, I used money in the Chase Manhattan bank account that belonged to them or other clients to pay for pay the requested funds. That's what he told the court. You see, Madoff targeted wealthy American Jewish communities using his status in the group to obtain investments from individuals and and from institutions. That's called affinity fraud. What it basically means is, is that he preyed upon his own people. Those he knew, they they believed him. I even read that while he was that, that while while he was in, in jail, or as he's been in jail, people have still believed him. Now most likely he'll spend the rest of his life in prison for his crimes. But unless he tr- unless he truly repents, he faces an even greater judgment at the hands of God. In our passage today, we'll, we'll begin to see another group. A group that, that wickedly preyed upon their own people for financial gain. But whether or not they are found guilty in an earthly court, they are guilty before God. And they face a certain doom. Now we've said already that James gives the rich, these wicked rich people, three warnings of their impending doom. Let us look at the first one. He warns them that your miseries are imminent. Your miseries are imminent. James says, come now. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. James starts this section uh, with the same address that he used in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now. Basically, this signals us to understand that James, while he's transitioned to addressing another group, he has not completely changed his subject. As, as we noted last week, our understanding of the previous passage, that uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, uh, helps us interpret this section and what James is talking about here. Let me quickly remind you of the three groups that, that James is addressing in this letter. He's addressing, uh, the, there are the, the poor oppressed brethren. These are the ones who, who are oppressed. These are the ones who are suffering. And he writes to encourage them. There are the, the wicked, the wicked and rich oppressors. Those are the ones who are oppressing uh, the poor brethren. And then there's those in the middle. I've called them, or we've called them, the fence riders. These are the ones who are one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They're trying to love the world and love uh, the Lord at the same time. And it doesn't work. They, they are adulterers. Now over the last couple of weeks, that we have learned uh, of James's concern for those who would presume upon God. Especially regarding their plans to travel and make wealth. More specifically, we've learned that James is concerned for the poor. 
and the poor brethren who were enduring great hardship from these, from these wicked, rich landowners who were associating themselves with the church. And what's going on is, is that in the, the, those in the middle, are, are, they're being forced to judge between the two groups, the poor brethren and the, these wicked, rich, wicked and rich landowners. Now we can't be exactly or can't be certain of the exact nature of these of their relationship the the wicked these wicked and rich folks we can't be exactly certain of the nature of their relationship whether they consider themselves to be a part of the group or if they're uh, truly on the outside but either way these these rich landowners seem to be taking great advantage of of some of the poor brethren and we know that there's these people in the church that we've called the fence riders. These are, are well-to-do so-called brethren who are clearly a part of the assembly. So let me make sure we reset here. We understand that the poor brethren that, that are being oppressed are a part of the assembly. They are, they are part of, of Christ's church. Then we have the, these wicked and rich oppressors that we're not quite sure. We know they're associated with the church, but we're not quite sure how they're associated. And then we have these guys, these people in the middle, these fence riders that are trying to have it both ways. We've said they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. These, are, these, these people are well-to-do brethren who are clearly a part of the assembly. They're, they're in the church, but they're trying to show friendliness to the, to the world. They, they have influence in the body of Christ, and, and they're probably in a position of even rendering judgments in the context of church life. Again, this is the fence riders. This is the, the group in the middle. But James is concerned that they're showing partiality toward the rich and are guilty of hurting other Christians. And clearly some of, of the, the poor brethren have even died because of these partial judgments. Making these people, culp- these fence riders, these people who are trying to be friends with the world, culpable even for murder. But because they could still repent, repent James exhorts this group more than any of the others. I think actually... He primarily writes to encourage the the oppressed brethren, right? He says, he starts the letter off, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So he's writing to encourage the the oppressed brethren, but he speaks more to these fence riders, to these, these people in the middle, than he addresses anyone else, than he addresses the other two groups. Let me show you, let me give you six quick ways that he addresses these people in the middle. In, in, verse, or in chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, number, the first way, he, uh, he warns them, he warns them against the, uh, the deadly nature of the deadly nature of sin. He tells them that, 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 that sin, temptation, is, is dangerous and to avoid it. Number two, in James 1, 19-26, he alerts them of the danger of being merely a hearer of the word and not a doer. He, he's telling them that they need, not only need to hear the word of God, but they need to act upon the word of God. And three, third, third thing he warns them. He warns them against rendering partial judgments against the poor man and for the rich. That's James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Four, the fourth way. 
He informs them that their faith is a dead faith. Even it is a dead faith if it does not have works which show their faith shows their faith to be real and true. That's James three thirteen through eighteen. I'm sorry. That's James one twenty seven and James two fourteen through twenty six. Fifth, he cautions against jealousy and selfish ambition. That's James three thirteen through eighteen. Sixth. He pleads with them not to be friends with the world and that they are committing spiritual adultery by trying to be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. That's James 4, 1 through 5. Now I said 6, but actually I think I ended up with 8 ways. Seventh, he exhorts them that they must repent of their sins and submit to God's grace and humility. That's James 4, 6 through 10. Eight, he shows them that loving their neighbor takes priority over their plans for travel to make money. It's James four thirteen through seventeen. He's exhorting these people that they need to that their their faith has to be a working faith, that they have to live their faith out in a way that shows that they truly love the Lord. And he's exhorting them in these these ways to show them of of their issues. Now, I hope that you're saying to yourself, you may be saying to yourself, well, some of these even apply to me, right? Does that mean that I'm on the fence? Does that mean that that's where I'm at? Well, my answer is maybe, maybe not. My job is to help you understand Scripture My job is to help you see what's going on here. And so we must understand James' audience and understand the situation to rightly interpret the word. You should note then that while there is one meaning of Scripture, see, we want to understand what James is saying. We want to understand why he's saying it. So there's one meaning to Scripture. But there's a range of application. There's a range of application. Therefore, these warnings can be applied to you even though they're not written with you in mind. Does that make sense? That, that these warnings can be applied in your own life. They can, we can look at our own life and say, oh wow, I, I can struggle that way. Because, because, because they're writ, they're, even if they're not written for you specifically, You see, there's nothing new under the sun. We struggle, we still struggle with these same tendencies, right? We still struggle with these same tendencies. So understanding James' purpose for writing these things uh, helps us not only to interpret, but to apply what he's saying. So so it's important that we we have the meaning so then then we can properly apply it to, to our lives. For example... If we didn't understand that in James 4, 13-17, he's speaking to those who are struggling to humbly follow Christ by sacrificially loving their neighbor, I would tend to think that James is strictly warning against travel without putting God first. You see the difference? You see the difference? You see where uh, if it, 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 it is, it, one is an application, the other is the meaning. I can apply it and say, look, I need to make sure that before I make these plans that I've, I've prayed about it and I've, I've asked the Lord and he's, I've sought His will. 
That's an important principle. That's an important application. But that's not the meaning of the text. That's not what James's James's point is. It would force me to apply the text by saying, don't be boastful in making your travel plans. That's not what James's point is. James's point is, is that we have priorities in our lives, to, a priority in our life to love our neighbor, and we need to think about who we're dealing with, and we need to make sure that we're, we're committed to what the, Lord's, what the Lord wants us to do in our lives. I might even, in verse 14, be just tempted to simply preach about the brevity of life. Those are great applications of the text, but that, they miss the point of the text. They miss the point. In other words, we limit the range of application when we don't understand the true meaning of the text. I hope you understand. Let me illustrate this to you. After the victory in Europe... The Allied leaders in World War II called for Japan, Japan's unconditional surrender. The Allies hoped that they could avoid a land invasion of, of Japan and the slaughter that was bound to happen. Initially, the Japanese government said nothing while they considered their options, so they, they kept quiet. But when reporters hounded the Japanese Prime Minister, eventually he uttered a single word which could have had several meanings. Now get this, the Prime Minister meant to say no comment, no comment, simply. But his choice of words is probably one of the most tragic decisions ever made. Unfortunately, the word translated was translated by the Allies as meaning not worthy of comment, held in silent contempt. You see the difference? You see the difference? The Allies, particularly America, were sick and tired of Japan's kamikaze spirit. So they took the word as an insult of the highest order and rejection of their demands for peace. And we all know what happened next. Beloved, we have to understand the context. The context of what the context of what's going on in as we as we interpret scripture is important. History tells us what happened next when, when it was misinterpreted what this Japanese prime minister said. But I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now, the misinterpretation of Scripture has even more tragic consequences than this story. Therefore, we have to be very careful in our interpretation so that we can properly apply the text in our lives. So back in... James 5.1, James makes his intended audience very clear. He says, Come now, you rich. We've already shown who these people are. They're these wicked landowners who are oppressing the poor brethren for further financial gain. In other words, they're getting rich off the backs of poor Christians by taking advantage of them. Taking advantage of their situation. Now let me make sure you understand. If I misinterpret that, then I might, be, might say, it's wrong to have money, right? It's wrong to have wealth. But it's not. That's not what's going on here. Having wealth is, is not the issue. It's how you're dealing with it with your heart, in your heart. Or am I loving my, na- my Lord and am I loving my neighbor with what He has given me? Now, 
At this point, we need to consider what these, their association, these wicked landowners, what their association is within the church. In other words, are they a part of the, the assembly? It's important for us to, to get a grasp of this. Commentators seem to be split on this question. Some believe that they were outsiders, that they were associated by some sort of financial arrangement to some in the church. Now, this seems possible because James describes these rich ones as making, making appearances, in James 2, making appearances in their assemblies for the sake of these judgments. But this would imply that these people were not, not a regular part of the gatherings. John MacArthur says this, James is obviously speaking to people who, though on the outside... May affirm, the, may affirm faith in Christ and love for God, yet they obviously love money. And their life is totally controlled and governed by that love of money. And so their spiritual state is revealed in the matter of their relationship to riches. Now, some then, this is the end quotes, now some then uh, believe that these people are tares, <coughs> that they've been sown in among the brethren. These, these rich landowners. They argue that James addresses them directly in this letter. Come now, you rich. And, and so that, that they, would have shared, been, been, they would have been a part of the regular, a normal part of the, of the regular gatherings. Now, I'm, I'm not sure it matters one way or the other. Uh, but I think that, that these people, I think that these people were probably loosely associated with the church. But they were not a regular part of church life. They may have feigned faith in Christ and a love for God to get close to these believers. But we can't be, can't be for certain. Now, it has been noted, we've noted, that James may be merely speaking of the rich, though he does not write to the rich themselves. But that, you, you think that, that that doesn't make a lot of sense. You would think... So if they're on the outside and he's actually writing a letter and it's going to be read to the church and he says, come now you rich, then you would expect them to be sitting in the, in the church. Now, I think though, I think though that they're probably on the outside. And I think he's probably writing to, to encourage the, the saints He's probably wanting them to in, in, encourage them then to bear with patience the violence of the rich. He's wanting to encourage them of what is going to, what is going to happen to the rich if they continue to oppress in the way that they've been doing so. Now, we have to understand, and I, I, I think, let me, let me kind of close the loop on this. I think that James knew that these wealthy landowners had their eyes and ears within the congregation. I think that James knew that when the letter was read, that even if they were on the outside, even if they were just loosely associated with the church, that they would hear what James had to say. That they would hear it because they had their eyes and ears in the congregation. And I, I think that James knew that. So I think that James addresses them as if they are actually sitting in the congregation and, and that they are actually hearing the letter be read. Now, it's probable, it's probable that the, the arrival of the letter from James, of a letter from James, would have caused quite a stir in the community. 
And you, you think about it. They get this letter from James from Jerusalem, and it would have caused quite a stir. Hey, we're going to be reading James's letter this evening. We're going to we're going to come together and read James's letter. So you would think that the these wicked rich rich landowners would know that, right? So it doesn't. There's it's no stretch to me to understand them to be outside the church, not a part of the regular gathering, but still know what's going on. I think that they would have been keenly aware of the contents of the letter. And we also should remember, and I just wanted to really go through this for this reason, we need to remember that James would have associated himself with these poor brethren, right? He would have associated himself, he would have been, he would have associated himself as one who is being oppressed by these rich landowners, it's highly unlikely that James was in a position of dependence on them because James was in Jerusalem. But his words of warning to them would have stung them. They would have been fighting words. And we need to remember, extra-biblical literature tells us that, that James was martyred for following Christ, either by stoning or by being thrown down from the temple. We're not quite sure. But clearly, James feared God and not man. And that would have been a great encouragement to those who were hearing this letter be read. That James was willing to stand up and stand and fight for these poor brethren and say, look, these people are oppressing and this is what's going to happen. This is the judgment that they, they are going to endure. And he tells the rich then to weep and to howl for their miseries which are coming upon them. To weep and howl. This term weep is commonly used to describe the weeping of those who are suffering the Lord's judgments. In Isaiah 13.6 it says, Wail for the, the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Hosea 7.14 says, And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine. They assemble themselves and they turn away from me. This word howl, it could, be, it could be translated howling with grief. It actually sounds like the action it describes. It's, an example of this in English would be tick-tock, the clock, tick-tock. And so this, this word for howl has that same idea of, of when you say it, you would, you would hear the sound. A similar word is employed in Mark 5.38 when Jesus entered the house where a, synagogue's official had a synagogue's official, synagogue official's daughter had died. In Mark 5.38 it says they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly wailing, weeping and wailing. And so James tells these people, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. <coughs> James clearly places the judgment as future. as a future eschatological judgment in the last days. These rich people are clearly at ease right now, but he warns them that they await the sure and righteous judgment of God. Sure, it's surely going to happen. 
Daniel in Daniel 12, 1 says, There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. In verse 2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's what James is talking about. James is saying that this is the judgment that these people, that awaits these people. So clearly James pronounces that that even though they're in a lap of luxury today, they face a future judgment. He's fulfilling the role of an Old Testament prophet prophet by by telling them to weep and to wail. It's like the the language of Old Testament passages such as Amos 8.3. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be, be the corpses. In every place they will cast them forth in silence. I mean, this, this is what James is saying, that, there's gonna, that, that these rich people, these rich oppressors, are going to face this certain judgment. He's like an Old Testament prophet saying, this is what's going to come to them. He's making clear that, that the judgment of the day of the Lord awaits those who are selfish and rich, who have hoarded their riches rather than using them for the glory of God. They have oppressed the brethren rather than loving them the way God intends. Therefore, they can be certain that their day of misery will come. And it will last forever. It should remind us of the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. You can turn there if you'd like. Luke 16, verse 19. Says there was now there was a rich man who and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he has been comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. You see, you may live, beloved, in the lap of luxury here. But if you are not right before God, if you are not right before the Lord, you face certain judgment. If you oppress the poor, you will be judged for it. And James reminds the brethren of this truth to comfort them. He also warns the rich of their imminent judgment. 
You should note that James does not offer these people the opportunity of repentance. Right? We see that with the, those in the middle, those fence riders, he has offered them the, the opportunity of repentance. Clearly he sees them past the point of no return. Their consciences are seared and they clearly are on the road of destruction. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10. You can turn there as well if you'd like. Hebrews 10, verse 26. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Look at verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what these people faced. Because they went on sinning willfully. And what the writer of Hebrews says is, is that if you go on sinning willfully, there, is no longer, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Well, we've seen. Well, I just want to—I want to show you this too. It's instructive for us to hear the rest of this passage. Look at verse thirty-two. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partly by me made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Does that sound familiar of what's going on with James? The, the, you've joyfully accepted the, the, the seizure of your property, right? Knowing that you have, have for yourselves a better possession and a, and a lasting one, is that not what James is talking about? He is warning those who would do these things to them, to the, these, poor, these poor brethren who are, who are being subjected to this suffering. He's warning these oppressors against this type of activity. And he's, in doing so, he's encouraging the brethren. Well, we've seen James's first warning, your miseries are imminent. They're coming, they're coming. You can't stop it. Let's look at the second warning. Your means are ineffectual. Look at verse 2. Look at the text. James chapter 2. If you're not there, you can turn back. James chapter 5, that is, verse 2. James writes, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has rusted, or have rusted. Rich, many rich people then have one thing in common. They, they, trust, they trust in their riches. In this case, these people had gained their riches by wronging their neighbor. They were dishonest and they were wicked. 
And they used dishonest scales which God hates. In Proverbs 20, 23, it says, Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. God hates the use of dishonest scales. And Proverbs 16, 11 says this, A just balance and scales belongs to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. The point is clear, and we talked about this as men this morning. God does not overlook the little things. God does not overlook those things that seem small to us. He will rightly judge those who cheat others out of what's rightly theirs. And He's not not aloof. He is keenly aware of all of our doings. Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Hebrews 4, 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Tragically, their wealth then, these, these rich oppressors, their wealth does them no good. It does them no good when they stand before God. James says, your riches have rotted. In other words, these ill-gotten riches which they have hoarded as slowly decays. They, they're in a state of rottenness. Have you ever purchased a new car? Babied it, right? Babied it. Then it gets that first scratch. For too long, it's just like any other car. It's beat up. Too many miles to be worth much. Have you ever looked at the at the owner's manual of an of an old car? You see the picture and on the front of the owner's manual. It's all pristine, and you look at the car and go, "What happened?" Right. Once upon a time, I worked at a scrapyard for a few months, and I we had a shredder there at the at the scrapyard, and that shredder would shred old cars in five seconds or less. The power was amazing. I, I had the opportunity to run it one day. And you could literally open up the jaws of this and you could, a car would go in and then five seconds later, pulverized, gone. Literally gone. It, as if it didn't exist ever before. It completely pulverized it in seconds. The, the cars that we shredded that were pulverized in seconds just a few years before were pristine. Right? I mean, they, they, they decay. That is the nature of riches in this world. They decay and become rotten. Fine clothes go out of style and they hang in the closet and become moth-eaten. It has been said that every product will decay, will decay and cease to exist and that the man who made it will pass away with it. We must remember then that God is the creator of all these things, right? That He's the creator, and that therefore we must worship the creator, not the creation, right? We need, we need to worship the one who made all these things and can make them all new, right? And will make them all new. Not worship the creation which is passing away. Luke 12.21 says that the man who stores up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. We need to remember the the words of Jesus in in Luke 12.33. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. And unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. John Piper says this, The person who thinks the money he makes is meant mainly to increase his comforts on earth is a fool. Jesus says, Wise people know that all their, their money belongs to God and should be used to show that God and not money is their treasure, their comfort, their joy, and their security. End quote. James goes on to say, Your gold and your silver have rusted or corroded. This is, a, this is a tough one to understand and to grasp com- completely or exactly. We recognize the, the, the nature of corroding silver, but can the same thing be said about gold? We could spend an, a, a, an extended period discussing whether gold can rust or corrode, but I think James's point is clear. I think that we should take his, his words as hyperbole. Not meant to be taken literally, but having a rhetorical punch. The point is, is that, you, that you're so secure in your wealth, but you don't even know that even your gold will come to ruin. Even your gold will come to ruin. You, you're, you're so secure in it, but even the gold that you think is, is, is always going to be there is going to come to ruin. And we must not forget that our Lord used similar words for the destruction of, of earthly wealth. He says this in Matthew 6.20, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust, that is, destroys, and where, di- where thieves do not break in or steal. Now, I, I believe there is an eschatological truth to James's word. There is a sense of which these, the riches of this current world are corrupted. I mean, it, that there is a sense in which the gold is going to corrode. In Romans 8.20 it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. It's Romans 8.20-22. All things that we see today will pass away, and all things will be made new. In other words, what you have in this world, even your gold, that seems so stable, doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Doesn't amount to nothing. The more you try to hold on to what you have, the more corruption you'll see. It's it's a truth. The rich man is fooling himself to think that the things that he will that, that will the things will that will do him any good that those things will do him any good, especially when he stands before God in judgment. Doesn't matter how much gold he possess, as he stands before God in judgment, it matters not. <clears throat> All his means are ineffectual. He can't even use his riches to stave off his own death. Reminds me of Herod Agrippa in Acts 12. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. We could make a study of Herod the Great. But in Herod Agrippa in Acts 12.21 says this. It says, Having put on his royal, royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. Verse 23, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. 
That's pretty bad, isn't it? Didn't matter how much he had. He, he stood and, and took the praise of man and an angel of the Lord struck him and he died. He, it, his riches didn't even stave off his death. Well, we've seen the first two warnings to the wicked rich. Your miseries are imminent and your mammon is... I'm sorry, your riches are imminent and your means are ineffectual. Let's look at the third one. Your mammon is an informer. Your mammon is an informer. Look at the last part of verse 3. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. These are horrifying words to those who trust their riches to save them. We must remember that the rich in this passage are not simply... they're 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 not condemned simply for their wealth. They are condemned for how they use their wealth and how they got it in the first place. As we said earlier, just to say that to say that this text applies to all wealthy people would be a misinterpretation of the passage. It applies to those who have sinfully gotten their wealth or, or sinfully done wrong to other people to get their wealth and are sinfully then using their wealth for their own pleasure. But these terrifying words should, though, be a caution for any of us who desires to get wealthy. That makes sense? If you sit here and you have a desire to get wealthy, these words should be a huge caution. John Owen says this, As men's diversions increase from the world, so do their entanglements from Satan. When they have more to do in the world than they well, can well manage, they have more to do from Satan than they can withstand. End quote. Beloved, God may well give you the ability to make money, but you must never forget where that wealth comes from. And as we said last week, nothing will reveal your heart quicker than wealth. And beloved, believe me, believe me when I tell you that success can take you places that your character can't sustain you. Let me say that again. Make sure you hear it. Your success can take you places that your character cannot sustain you. And when you have all that you think you desire, the rust of your wealth will be a witness against you. James says that it will consume your flesh like fire. Many of you may remember the Indiana Jones movies and I'm not making movie recommendations and I don't usually use movies as as an illustration but there is a scene from the first Indiana Jones movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark that where the German officers open up the Ark of the Covenant and the judgment of God is depicted by their flesh being melted away. It's very it's 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 kind of a crazy scene. It's probably now that you look at it it's different than what it was back then but with the, with the way movies have changed. And of course this is fictional, right? But the horrifying truth is much worse. That's fictional but the horrifying truth is much worse. 
For those who trust in their riches, especially those who have lied, cheated, and stolen to get those riches, there is a horrifying reality of judgment that will come upon them. And their judgment will be never-ending. And they will be judged with fire. And earlier in James 3, 5-6, he described, James described fire that had its source in hell itself. The, the language that James uses as metaphorical, he even seems to mix his metaphors, but he describes something that's all too real. We can't then, beloved, avoid the teaching of hell and judgment. Listen to Ezekiel 15, 7. And I set my face against them, though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Jesus himself spoke of judgment by fire. In Matthew 13, 41, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of of fire. In the place that there will, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, James's warning or warnings are designed to provoke a response. Now, think about this with me. What response? Repentance. Repentance. Especially from those who are riding the fence. Especially from those who are desiring to go and make wealth and are forgetting their brethren in the, in the process. As they see the nature of judgment, if they continue down the road they're on, as they seek after riches and pleasure, they see that they can have all they want on this earth, but their gain will only serve to judge them in the end. James wants them to repent and to turn from it. James doubles down by saying that it is in the last days that you stored up your treasure. This doubles down on the imminent nature of God's judgment. It's coming. You can't avoid it. You must live as if Christ will return any time. Beloved, we must believe and understand that we are living in the last days. Jeremiah 23.20 The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and carried out the purposes of His heart. In the last days you will clearly understand it. It's coming. Beloved, the last days, they, they represent the period that, that where the Lord is coming to vindicate His own, but He will judge the wicked in that time. But as the author of Hebrews writes, Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. We're speaking of judgment, but I am, I am convinced of better things. If you just heed what is said, said here and turn from those things. Listen to this quote by Don Green. It's a longer quote. Listen to it. What the world gives, it eventually takes away. Think it all the way through, my friend. Age, decline, and death are undefeated in the course of history. 
Where are the men of wealth of the 1940s? Where are the political leaders of the 1950s? Where is the glamour of the Hollywood starlets even from the 1960s? Where is the strength of winning athletes of the 1970s? Gone and forgotten. Don't you see? It will be thus for the rich, powerful, beautiful, and vigorous we see in our time. Today's newsmakers are tomorrow's obituaries. Bit actors on a stage that doesn't bear their presence for long. If it is so for them, how much more for ones like you and me? Our earthly pursuits, even the best of them, perish in the end. My friend, don't close your eyes or stick your fingers in your ears just because the truth is uncomfortable. Your soul can greatly profit from it if, if only you will. If you listen, what do you live for? See through this passing world and seek Christ while you have time. You will lose all if you don't. You will gain all if you do. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's 1 John 2.17. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. John 6.40 We end this with a quote from Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Beloved, you may be poor, But don't seek after wealth for your own comfort. Don't seek after it for your own pleasure. Don't look with envy toward those who have more than you. Rather, whether you have money or not, don't seek after wealth. But seek Christ and He will raise you up on the last day. He will certainly not cast you out. He may have given you the ability to make money and that's okay. But I urge you to use it for His glory. And don't cheat others to, make, to get more of it. And don't hoard it. J.C. Ryle says, Nothing, I am sure, has a tendency to quench the fire of religion as the possession of money. Beloved, it has also been said that the fellow that has no, no money is poor. But the fellow who has nothing but money is poorer still. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this again for this passage of Scripture. Lord, it's uh, heavy-hitting as we consider these things. Yet, Lord, I know, I know that your word, when preached hard, when we preach hard things, produces soft hearts. I pray our hearts would be soft to it. I pray that we would consider these things and consider this world that we are passing through, that it is, it is here today, gone tomorrow. And so are we. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.